the end of uh, the first day of uh, residential retreat, it's often a good time to talk about faith, even though maybe we don't hear that word that often in sort of a Buddhist context. But it's an important force in our life, and it's actually operating whether we identify, notice it or not. We have all kinds of beliefs that we organize our life around. And uh, I'm sure some of you are noticing, maybe all of us in our own way, just how difficult it can be to have a simple environment like we have with pretty much just one basic instruction, which is, can we remember to be aware of the present moment? Can we remember to recognize the present moment? It turns out, no, <laughs> or at least not continuously, right? I mean, it's a rare, it's a rare thing that we have some real momentum, one moment after another. Oh yeah, it's like this. This is being known. That sort of embodied, kind, continuous presence. So because it's so difficult. Um, you know, it can be a setup for us, just being tired and uh, <clears throat> just the heaviness of the mind, the heaviness of the body can <clears throat> activate and strengthen that sense that I'm doing something wrong or I made the wrong choice to come here. I'm not learning anything. And we have a lot of baggage just in really all places in our lives, in our romantic area, the romantic part of our life, or idealism that we've had about this and that. There's been a lot of betrayals where we put our heart into something, <clears throat> believed in something, only to find that it wasn't the best place to put our faith or confidence in. And often when that happens, we begin to mistrust our own perception. What was I thinking? Why didn't I see that? Why didn't I sense what was off in that person, in that spiritual organization, in that idea I had about what was going to make me happy? Even in our choice to watch a particular movie, what was I thinking? Why did I think that would make me happy? You know, or eating too much. Why did I think that was going to work for me? Eating all of that, or eating that kind of food that doesn't really work for me. And, you know, as an ordinary human being, we can't really do without confidence or faith or even less useful, but even the word beliefs, because it's sort of an organizing mechanism for our mind. We have some sort of, like even now, some sort of confidence that it might be helpful to pay attention. You know, as opposed to, it's totally okay not to pay attention. So we use these sort of beliefs or these uh, really arising, hopefully, out of our experience, like 
given I have this life, I have this mind and body, what should I do with it? This is uh, from one of the Western um, Buddhist monks in the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Jayasaro, he's a pretty well-known monk. Uh, although he's mostly in Thailand, he does come to the West and teach from time to time. And he wrote once, everyone is afraid their life doesn't mean anything. Right, so we're sort of responding to that primal existential fear, like what is my life about? Not that it even gets to that level of consciousness, but it's there. So we, you know, sign up for a Buddhist meditation retreat, or we have faith that if I work hard at work and I get ahead, my life will be meaningful. Or if I work on this relationship with this other person, and then that will have meaning. And the Dharma practice relies on the same thing that everything else in life relies on, this sort of organizing principle of faith or confidence. But it's just doing it in a more moment-to-moment way, in a less idealistic way. Because one of the basic premises from the Buddha is that no matter how we conceive of like what my life is about or how I conceive of what's important, the conception, my articulation of it, including a talk like this, will never be it. Our words can point to our actual experience, but the words themselves, however beautifully spoken, however reasonable, it's sort of, they're going to be limited. They can inspire what in the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, is called bright faith. Like, wow, that sounds right. That sounds good. That's a compelling picture you just painted. You know, somebody talking to you about something. Or even seeing somebody. So it isn't even words, but you just see somebody interacting And that can inspire bright faith. Like, whoa, what does that person know that I don't know? They seem pretty fearless or pretty at ease, pretty comfortable in their own skin, pretty relaxed and nimble and kind and skillful. What are they doing? What do they know that I don't know? How do I get what they got? Right? So that's bright faith where <clears throat> our interest has been sparked. And again, because hopefully we're healthy, balanced enough that we realize we're not there yet. Meaning, I mean, we can hear even that teaching, oh, it's already okay. Everything is just as it should be. And we can pretend that that's true, but that being idealistic, that will also be a betrayal. Even though if in some way those words point to some very deep truth, it's not real for us. We may want it to be real, that it's all okay, everything is as it should be, we're all one. You know, there are all kinds of phrases like this in spiritual circles. 
and clinging to them is not only stressful, hoping is not only stressful, it really sets up these betrayals. And, and the worst thing about the betrayal isn't that we realize, oh, that person doesn't really, or that tradition didn't really know what they're talking about. The worst thing about these betrayals is we begin to mistrust our own mind, our own heart. Like, I had the perception that this was trustworthy. I placed my heart upon it, and it didn't, didn't work out very well. And again, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a relationship with another human being or a spiritual practice or anything. So how do we find our way is really the question. And you know, it can be so disappointing. I remember in one of Ajahn Sumedho's writing, he's another one of these Thai forest Westerners, a Buddhist monk, one of the senior monks here in the West. And uh, he referred to this, you know, the practices that come out of the Buddha, these early Buddhist teachings, as earthworm practices. The later schools of Buddhism often refer to early Buddhism as the lesser or lower vehicle. And then the more um, recent schools that develop, like Mahayana, the Mahayana means the great vehicle, the better vehicle. And so this earthworm practice, as Ajahn Sumedho calls it, because we're not, it's really, as you can sense, it's a very undecorated non-ornate way of addressing the concerns of the heart. And especially here in the West, um, because we're sort of beginning again with some of these early Buddhist teacher teachings, you know, we haven't, if they haven't, the tradition hasn't been that institutionalized. So we haven't done all that not so healthy institutional stuff like building big things pointing to the sky <laughs> to impress people who walk by, right? Which is what you know religions, religious institutions often do. You've got this big temple and they're inspiring. You know, when you see the big cathedrals or the big stupas in Asia, the Buddhist stupas, they're quite impressive. But it can sort of uh, they're not always or even often pointing us to what's relevant, this earthworm practice. Because this really leads to like the bright faith. There's lots of things that trigger bright faith and bright confidence. But the next stage is a more verified faith, as it's called in the tradition. And that's where something, whatever it is that inspired us, and maybe it is even because we saw a big stupa, there's a really huge one in Rangoon that I remember seeing after my five-month retreat there. We we had one day of tourism, <laughs> hardly even a day because we had to do a lot of paperwork, but 
and we saw the Shwedagon pagoda. But anyway, it's a huge stupa in Rangoon. And, uh, you know, it's really impressive. But you don't know what it's impressive. Like, it's not clear. Like, is it impressive because of, like, the greed that it took to make that happen or the devotion that makes it happen? Or it's probably a combination of all sorts of human emotion, human attitudes that allowed that huge thing to be done and maintained all these years. But it doesn't really, I mean, it, it can be a little inspiring, but that has to be directed to something that can be actually verified. So it's not outside of my experience, but it's being, what's being verified is here and now in my experience. Because the whole path the Buddha pointed out is a path towards independence, not dependence. And so... We initially were very dependent on getting some new teachings because something's got to rock the boat. Otherwise, we just keep thinking in the ways we've been culturally conditioned to think, basically. So we need some outside, most of us at least, need some outside input to inspire us, that bright faith. Whoa, you know, we're a messed up human being, struggling to be happy. We bump into some of these teachings and they make a lot of sense, and we notice some of the people who've been practicing these teachings, and they seem, they seem to, you know, be respectable, and maybe even more, like, inspiring in some ways. We have some bright faith. Because at that point, we don't have our own experience to kind of inspire us. We have outside cues to inspire us. And then we start to reflect on what we've heard and seen and see if any of it lines up with our own experience. And it's always interesting when we have that experience of, you know, whether it's in a set or just in daily life, it's something, we're learning something about the mind that all of a sudden we realize maps very cleanly on a teaching that we heard the Buddha say or someone say that the Buddha said. And that's really that there's a kind of energy that arises, oh, if this is true, like what the Buddha said about this is true, because now I'm seeing it directly in my own experience, it doesn't matter if nobody else thinks it's true, I see clearly this is in fact the case. When my mind is identified with greed, everything gets tight. Something like that. like we where we really now we all think we know greed but it's it's a whole nother thing to observe greed without judging it so we're really just observing it we're not trying to control it we're not trying to get rid of it and we really see oh yeah when there's greed there's entanglement there's stress it hurts and the mind has less clarity right oh that's what the buddha said you know, that's what these early Buddhist teachings say, or a lot of the traditions in Buddhism talk about greed as a cause for suffering. Well, what else did he come to understand about the mind? And little by little, we start to verify some of the 
maps, some of the pointing out instructions, we begin to see, oh yeah, there is this path. And it's, like I mentioned, I think last night, it's not Buddhism, the path isn't Buddhism, it's this path of human common sense around the causes for stress and the causes for reliefs. And in institutional contexts, we call it Buddhism. But it's really human beings from the time of the Buddha on, and certainly from before the time of the Buddha, the Buddha was the, this historic person, was the beneficiary of a lot of wisdom already in that culture. But he had some themes, you know, as best historians and academics can figure out. It seems like he had some really powerful new understandings, new insights that arose out of the collective wisdom that he gained from, you know, studying with the wise folks during that time. So first we have the bright faith, then we verify, we feel that, we feel empowered enough to check it out. And the thing is, because like uh, Ajahn Jayasaro says, everyone is afraid, their life doesn't mean anything, when we get bright faith, we don't really want to verify it, we just want it to be true. You know how that is, like even silly things where I'll see a cabin for sale, some of you know it. It's just a little obsession, it's getting weaker. I don't really think I'm going to buy a cabin on Lake Superior, partly because I can't afford it, but even if I could, it just feels more and more like a big headache. But I still kind of like it, and it's that sort of, you know, just imagining like the bright, oh yeah, that sort of thing. Even like, could be around some food that you didn't get today, that you'd like tonight before you go to bed. Oh yeah, that would make me happy. That's sort of unverified. And then when we're really desperate, really unhappy as a human being, then we become very dependent and in a way addicted to moments of bright faith. And you see this in politics where somebody dangles something, some hope, where everything will be taken care of, and our mind, minds want to grab onto it because we're desperate for an answer, and we're not okay with ambiguity, and we're not okay not knowing, and we don't really feel like we have enough safety to check it out, to kind of, okay, I mean, just even in terms of a spiritual center, or spiritual teacher, like, oh yeah, they seem pretty impressive, but I've been around the block a few times. I know that a lot of impressive people have turned out to be schmucks. So I'm going to observe, you know, I'm going to listen, I'm going to look behind the scenes, see what they, how they handle money, see how they handle power, see if they walk the talk, right? Get to know some people who've been around this person for a long time and see if they're a kind and wise human being or not. So this, even on that level, like verifying that, that initial brightness that we felt coming into contact with a set of teachings or whatever it might be, right? Just that being deliberative like that, it takes some 
safety in our lives and some, you know, we can't be completely overwhelmed if we're really going to find our way, which is unfortunate, but seems true, that we have to have some privilege, really, to check things out. And some initial confidence that things, I can verify for myself what is skillful and unskillful. And this is really the beginnings of, you know, what the Buddha would consider real wisdom. When there's some confidence that I don't need an outside source to tell me whether I'm being skillful or unskillful. There are ways that I can pay attention to my own heart, my embodied life here, and I will feel directly, know directly, whether what I'm doing, how I'm thinking, how I'm acting, whether that's skillful or not, whether I'm planting seeds of suffering in my life and probably in lives around me, or if I'm planting seeds of release and happiness for myself and others. Right? And that's what I mean about the independence. And that's a real, that's a huge step for a human being to begin to have some confidence. I have the capacity to know what's skillful, wholesome, and what's unskillful or unwholesome. I'm not dependent on others. I, good friends, wise friends, wise teachers, good therapists, whatever, that could be really helpful, right? So we're not dismissing how nice it is to have wise people around us. But we're beginning to sense that, no, no, I can, I can feel, feel into what's going on in my life. I can show up. And again, it isn't, I'm not showing up with a belief. So what we, where I'm get, getting to, you know, in terms of what, in, in this sort of Dharma practice setting, following these teachings of the Buddha, what do we have faith in? It's really in this internal process that we simply call wisdom. Right? That, that the moment can be comprehended directly, immediately, felt into directly, immediately in terms of the causes for stress and suffering and the causes for release. And it's just a matter of developing this primal, primary tool of awareness, mindful awareness. Because karma isn't some theory like what are the karmic fruits, what are the What's the karmic impression left when I spoke that way, acted that way, or even thought that way? What trace or impression was left? So that now, having done that five minutes ago, the heart that's here now is the continuation of the heart that did that thing, that skillful thing or that unskillful thing. This heart is the continuation of that. And I feel it, I sense it directly the wholesomeness of having said or done or not done something, or the unwholesomeness of having done something unskillful. It's right here. Like remorse. Remorse isn't, is neither good nor bad. We can make remorse a really powerful thing, like, oh yeah, the reason that hurts 
is because there's enough wisdom in my mind that's remembering that what I said or did, it was unwholesome. How do I know? Because of this felt sense of remorse. Right? And that's not the same as shame or guilt. It's like, it's, I'm really happy to know what isn't helpful, what causes stress in my life and probably in others' lives, to kind of feel into that. Because that happens on retreat a lot, you know, not just for the last week or so, but it could be years, decades ago, things will come up just as we settle, the mind, body gets a little bit more quiet, and something, a memory will come up from long ago or not so long ago, whatever, and we'll feel what it feels like. And it could be a really beautiful memory. And the flavor in the heart is, whatever that was, it was really beautiful and skillful. And the reverberation here, the impression here, actually being known here, doesn't matter what anybody else tells me because I'm directly experiencing the continuation of that wholesome act. It feels good, right? Isn't it true that I mean, this is actually a useful quiz. You know, couldn't we all bring to mind one beautiful, wholesome thing that happened in our life where we acted in a really noble, fearless, kind way? And the reverberation now is a sort of, there's goodness here, right? That memory reminds me of this capacity to be good or to be wise or to be fearless or whatever it was for you. And the same, of course, about something unskillful. And the pain would still be here if we brought even something long, long ago. I remember, I sometimes mention this in talks, um, saying something to my brother. He was, so I was probably like eight or nine. And uh, he had a turtle and he wasn't, caring for the turtle in the way I thought he should, and the turtle wasn't doing very well. You know, just the turtle we found in a pond or a lake. And uh, and I just knew how to say something to him to make, because he loved that turtle, and just to really hurt him, you know, like basically um, making him feel bad that he's not taking care of his turtle. And I bring that to mind, and it still hurts. Like, how, you know, like that, using power, like knowing somebody's weak spot and turning it so that it hurts, right? So this is what I mean, like that's where we're verifying our confidence. Oh yeah, because once we realize our skill and unskillfulness, and it not, it's not theoretical, by the word, by using that word skillful or unskillful, we mean like the direct cause for the heaviness in my heart, the direct cause for the stressfulness of my entanglements, the burdensomeness, or the direct cause for the release of all of that weight, the release of that, those entanglements and that fear and that heaviness. I mean, it's sort of like saying, you know, just in a really gross way, okay, I've, Shelley and I have scattered, you know, $10,000 in gold coins around the retreat building. Whatever you find is yours. We, we would be riveted 
about like looking for shiny gold things, right? So basically, as we verify these teachings, we're being told, honey, gold coins. There, there are, you actually have the capacity to be deeply happy, deeply released, deeply peaceful. All of the coins, you know, the causes for that resonant happiness, they're right here. You don't need a different life, different set of circumstances. They're here and now. They're always here and now. They can't not be here and now. There's no other place those gold coins could be. Well, we'd start paying attention about what sort of seeds we're planting. And we'd be planting beautiful seeds. But we have a lot of faith that the causes for my unhappiness, my sleepiness, my whatever is weighing us down, the problem isn't within my control. That somehow we've been screwed over by, you know, external forces. And so what we're left with is complaining or blaming, as opposed to having enough confidence to see, is it possible to plant seeds of happiness? Is it possible to avoid planting seeds of unhappiness right now? And that's a big turning point. And and you can see why an initial amount of safety and comfort in life is really almost essential. Because if we're sort of like a hunted animal, or if we're being uh, really oppressed in our life in any number of ways, right? The, the sort of fixation on the external negative forces could be like even having cancer, or it could be just being mistreated in some way, uh, treated unjustly in some way. But whatever those external forces might be, it's like it triggers the survival instinct, and the mind is going to be riveted on those external conditions, and it's going to be very hard to work in this more subtle level. So basically, we're dealing with short-term danger, short-term oppressive conditions, and never really having the bandwidth to get interested in the long-term resolution of the heart's problem. And that's why, you know, as um, one of the reasons that we want to care about how other human beings are living isn't just that we want them to, you know, have nicer food or nicer living conditions or opportunities for, you know, take vacations. But when people are being mistreated, they don't really have the opportunity to do spiritual practice in the same way because they're just trying to survive, just trying to keep their family safe. And it sets, you know, you know how it is. We've all had periods of time when we've been really um, in difficult circumstances. And it's hard just to get a good night's sleep when that's going on. And our eating habits, you know, what do we do? How do we eat? I don't know about you, but I know how I eat when life isn't going well for me. 
you know, and I know what kind of choices I make about media, you know, how much news I read, how much anything basically to distract myself from the pain. And so this is also one of those pieces of faith and confidence is, do we have faith and confidence that we can touch joy? Do we know where to find some joy? And this is like, we've got a couple days left now. This is a really great place because some of our go-to places to find joy, a good friend of mine, former board member at Common Ground, um, uh, we had lunch the other day and she showed me a Halloween costume of a panda bear and uh, we were sort of joking about it. And then she confessed to having a thing for pandas and showed me her 90-second YouTube video. Some of you have seen it because it's a pretty uh, popular video of three, I think they're baby pandas, going down a human slide. You know, one of their caretakers is running up the slide and running down and they're following the caretaker. And they're like these little panda kids are tumbling over each other and sliding on the back and on their belly down the slide and then tumbling when they get to the bottom of the slide. And it's like, it's not about the video, right? It's like the modeling, right? Three creatures and the caretaker modeling play. And it, it does something to our mind just to see that in this world where there's so much uncertainty and so much injustice that is it a betrayal? Is it something wrong to touch into joy? And so so really exper- experiment with it because you can see in this setting, because, you know, there can be sleepiness and the body can hurt and, you know, we don't have our normal distractions and it can feel a little bit like a bunch of grim zombies walking through the halls. And <clears throat> so to, at, for periods of time, just, to, okay, mindfulness of joy. And it's not that we're suppressing or repressing pain. But we're just, because there's there's choice in terms of what we're aware of in the present moment. So to ask the question, when paying attention to what, might this mind experience some ordinary delight? Right? When paying attention to what? You know, one of the reasons that we do the loving-kindness practice at the end of the afternoons, not always, but on most of our retreats, is it? it's it's basically a way of addressing that question. Well, when I bring my cat to mind and remember holding my cat, and I have this way, I support its rear legs because it seems to not like to be dangled into space, (laughs) so I give it some ground. And then the other hand is on its chest, and I just sort of, rub under the neck a little and and rub the chest fur and he purrs and I do some equivalent of the purring (laughs) you know and I usually stand in front of a window so he can look out and we have our moments like that and I can touch into a little joy and when I realize that joy 
then, you know, once we touch into a little joy, maybe it's watching the chickadees at the feeder, maybe it's just observing somebody walking back and forth, doing their walking meditation, and just seeming to be in the moment, in their body, or whatever it might be, appreciating all the volunteers, seeing the sign of all the people who did different things to make these, this retreat happen. How, what, what is the effect on the mind? Or see the glistening of the snow crystals when the sunlight hits them. Or I don't know, such an interesting contrast. I stepped out not that long ago and it was like the smell of manure. Because <laughs> this time of year, they, you know, they liquefy the manure and spread it on the, on the fields, of course. And this is a very common occurrence because we do this retreat every year at this time. And there's lots of big fields around. So we get, whenever the wind is blowing right, we get that nice smell. And then to hear that really interesting sound. Did you hear that sound of the ice? Right? Because it's pretty thin and there's just enough wind and there's some kind of beautiful percussive sound. Yeah, it's just delightful. And just like the fact that we can be here and be talking about our hearts and even talking about it's possible for us, each of us, to get a little better moment by moment, day by day, year by year, get a little better at taking responsibility for our happiness, no matter external conditions. I'm not saying that external conditions don't matter. I'm just saying that every human being has every incentive to play with the internal causes like, what's my mind doing? How's my heart relating? Is it helpful or is it unhelpful? Because we always can take responsibility for how we're showing up to really bad, terrible circumstances or really favorable circumstances. That we can do. And, you know, not completely verified, but, and people like the Buddha say, there is a full, extinguishing, complete, unshakable extinguishing of dukkha, of stress, of suffering, that isn't dependent on conditions. And we hear about that and run into different flavors of that, right? Sometimes, hopefully, you have a wise friend and something really difficult has happened to them, but they seem relatively unscathed, even buoyant. You know, like they're handling it so well. And we get a little sense of what the Buddha is pointing to. Okay, ease even with difficult circumstances. Whoa, that's interesting. Right? That, that brightens the faith, makes us want to check it out. And it leads eventually to, in the tradition, sometimes it's translated as abiding faith, right? Or unshakable faith is another way this more advanced faith is talked about, where... Um, we don't require, you know, somebody to remind us. It's sort of slowly, little by little, in our bones. 
And we have some of that abiding faith. There are some things we've learned the hard ways over and over and over again. In one of Malcolm Gladwell's book, we kind of, I don't know if it was just him, but anyway, there's just this growing um, sense that you have to do something a lot before it becomes sort of embedded in the heart. And I think the number was about 10,000 times, right? We see something 10,000 times, and then we might have that unshakable confidence, faith. Oh yeah, this is actually how it is. I've studied this, I've studied it, and I've studied it. I've really looked at it from every angle. There is nothing anybody could say at this point, including the Buddha could descend from, well, the Buddha isn't anywhere, they say, in the tradition, but if they showed up, you know, and said, no, 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 you're wrong. Sorry, Buddha, I verified this. It's now an abiding confidence, abiding faith. It's unshakable. And again, it isn't some conceptual idea that we have this confidence in. It's really, we have confidence in this process of paying attention and trusting our lived experience. That's why Shelley and I have been talking a lot about embodiment. Really as a counterweight for our habit of having faith in what we think and sort of dazzling ourselves, just like politicians dazzle us, celebrities dazzle us. You know, we're sort of fascinated with competence in a way, like just even whether it's musical competence or someone's articulate with words or, you know, their beauty is a kind of a competence. But it's sort of like these relatively superficial things that dazzle, right? That end up being pretty empty. This is one of the things that a lot of us uh, were inspired by when we started to study these teachings from the Buddha because of this emphasis on independence or self-reliance and grounding in our own experience, verifying in our own experience And real faith, real confidence comes from our own experience. And it, hopefully, I mean, Buddhist organizations, Buddhist institutions can be just as susceptible as others to sort of, you know, bad stuff happening because people didn't, you know, took the bait and got dazzled by whatever and didn't really check things out. And so maybe somebody wasn't really walking their talk or... You know, things weren't as clean as they might have initially appeared. But this way we want to be practicing in a way where anything could happen. I mean, really anything. And we just keep practicing. doesn't mean, you know, we're learning along the way. It's like I did a real study my early years. I was so fascinated by people who are really respected teachers doing really stupid things. And I still have it. I, I, I was going through some of my old files recently and I saw this. I hadn't, haven't looked at it probably 15, 20 years. But, but I had like, every time there was some spiritual teacher, Buddhist teacher or whatever, who did something, you know, had an affair or misused some funds or did this or did that, 
I'd kind of clip it out, and I'd keep because it was there was something like I had a I had a lot of idealism. I still do. I my personality type. I can be sort of idealistic, and so I've been you know over the thirty seven years of my sort of formal dedicated spiritual practice, I've really teased that out in little big ways over the years. And, uh, yeah, it's just sort of, uh, we all have to do some version of that. And for those of you who are, who are beginning or began your spiritual path with a lot of skepticism, well, that's also, just like idealism leads to fundamentalism, skepticism can also be a fundamentalist view. Oh, nobody knows what they're talking about. Nothing's worth looking into. Why go there? They're just going to be stupid people too, you know? (laughs) And the, the thing is, how do we use institutions, use traditions, sets of teachings skillfully, right? And it's really this instruction or these important uh, value in the Buddhist teachings of self-reliance and really grounding in our own experience. Because that's how we learn how to take what's good and leave the rest. And not expect perfection. Even the best teachers, they're not perfect human beings because they have a personality that's been conditioned by culture. How could that be perfect? And they don't have a perfect body because their body has been conditioned by the life they've led in however many millions of years of evolution, right? So these things are just nature. There's nothing perfect in a personality, in somebody's body, certainly not in an institution. But these you know, these things, institutions, people, bodies, they're vehicles for pointing out instructions, right? But it's never, the pointing out instruction isn't itself useful. What's useful is hearing it, reflecting on it, seeing how it illuminates your own experience, how it can help you connect, ground into your experience, learn from your experience, right? That's our job is to let life inspire us, let joy, let beauty inspire us. Use, it's this is like some of the later schools in both um, the yogic mystical traditions and in Buddhism in northern India, where they danced together for many centuries. This tantric tradition, it's really about how we use life the ex- sort of how it moves us, how it touches our heart, inspires us, how we take the energy from contact, from experience, from being engaged, being awake, and we use it to keep illuminating, going deeper, seeing what we haven't seen. And it's a very specific, right, because it, because we can get, there's so many places to investigate. So this is the other really trustworthy thing from my point of view. It immediately broke my heart open when I sensed this in the Buddhist teachings. It's all about suffering and the end of suffering. Because it really simplified everything else. And it just hit home like, 
yeah, that's actually all I care about. And I have one of those minds, besides being sort of idealistic, I have one of those minds that's interested in everything. And fascinated by this and fascinated by that. And there's no end to that. You know, getting interested in this and interested in that. And it's not bad. I mean, if you're going to use a life to just sort of be fascinated by this for a while and then be fascinated... I mean, it's better than, you know, trying to be in charge of all human beings and bend everybody to your will, you know, to kind of (laughs) gain a lot of knowledge and understanding about how everything works. There is some joy in that, clearly. But it doesn't really resolve suffering for ourselves and for others. And so when the Buddha said, you know, he's got this basic, we can do it, every human being has the capacity to learn from their experience, to cultivate this integrity of awareness, this embodied and kind and immediate presence with our life, and understand the causes for suffering and the causes for release, to sort of let everything else fall to the side. Now, even though that's our main focus, suffering and the end of suffering, there will be times when we're hitting a dry spot, not a lot of joy. So we may go watch some pandas sliding down a slide, you know, or go upstairs and make a cup of tea and put a lot of honey in it, you know, and sit in front of a comfortable sit in a comfortable chair and look at the chickadees, pull out all the stops, right? <laughs> That's about as much as you can do here. <laughs> Because we need to touch into some joy, and that's that would be great. Or you could the sort of top for touching the joy is when that yellow lab comes around. Anybody see the yellow lab? Yeah. I don't know. Did anybody try throwing the stick onto the ice? Did you do? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if he'd go get it. <laughs> uh, maybe he's smart enough not to do that. Yeah, but uh, he'll uh, during the summertime when he comes, you know. I think he he can spend three or more hours a day one retreat after another throwing the stick in the lake. Which is fine as long as we know what we're doing. Okay, I can be mindful of this. I can relate to this activity with the dog in an embodied way. I can notice the dependence on the joy and see that that's a cause for suffering. Or I can just notice this joy is impermanent. It's beautiful, it's delightful, and it comes and goes. It won't resolve the deeper anxiety and uncertainty in my heart, but it's nice because it reminds me that it's not all grim, right? Because when we feel like our practice is sort of pulling teeth, then we're not really good for our practice anymore. We need to change it. Do some loving-kindness practice, do some gratitude practice, there's a little line from, uh, I love this, from something Jack Hornfield wrote. It's in his book, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. Just a small book. And he's talking in this chapter about gratitude. He writes, Gratitude is a gracious acknowledgement of all that sustains us. A bow to our blessings, great and small. An appreciation of the moments of good fortune fortune that sustain our life. 
every day. We have so much to be grateful for. Gratitude is confidence in life itself. In it, we feel how the same force that pushes grass through cracks in the sidewalk invigorates our own life. Yeah, there is something about life that's unstoppable, that actually can be trusted. But we have to, it it requires a paradigm shift because we think what's good in life, I have to own it. I have to lock it up so it's mine, it will always be there to take care of me. And that's where the betrayal comes. Same with like uh, a lover, I need that person to be there for me always, the way that I need them to be there for me. I don't care about who they are. I need them to be the way I need them to be. Right? Well, that's not going to work. And it's the same with spiritual traditions and teachers and friends and everything. We can't, we're not going to find safety by locking something up, by getting solid ground. And the Buddha just, that's, you know, he just starts with that point. Honeys, there's no solid ground to be had. But there is freedom. There is an unshakable release of the heart, a resonant happiness to be had. But it doesn't come from somebody getting solid ground. Right? Just for lack of better words, it comes from letting go of that belief Letting go of the idea, the fixation on the idea there's somebody who needs solid ground. But that idea needs to be verified and until it's unshakable. The reality that life, the joys and sorrows, the reason we can show up with so much love and so much skill and so much perseverance is because all the joys and sorrows aren't referring back to anybody. And that's the freedom, not wanting joy, but no sorrow, but being able to say yes to it all. That's real freedom. So then we're not dependent on nature, because nature is just going to be playing out all its causes and conditions endlessly. That's why we'll never find that ground that we think somebody needs. Maybe instead of looking for a quote to end with, we'll just end with a little silence here. And just touching into our own hearts for a minute or two. And in particular, can we trust, you might even put your hand on your heart, can we trust this sensitive heart, this feeling heart, Can we trust this heart to find its way, to know the difference between causes for stress and the heart that puts down, releases those causes?
for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.